All right, all right. In your Bibles, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is part four in our Quenching Questions series. Last week we got together and we were talking about the validity of the Bible. The validity of the Bible and what makes it true, right? People will say, well, why would you believe in a Bible that was written by man? And we kind of spent some time uh, discussing those things last time. We're talking about um, the scientific strength of the Bible, the historic strength of the Bible, um, and how there were great accuracies in that. It's power to transform lives. We talked about the word canon and how it was a measuring rod or a standard by which, uh, the mess- by which things would uh, come into play and how they were a- able to put those things into the Bible. We talked about inspiration and what that meant and how it's not just about like, you know, getting an idea of how to do something really pretty, but it's about how God breathed those words into uh, those, uh, those men of God. It wasn't it was the same, like the same breath that God used to give us life is the same breath he used to breathe life into his word, right? And that's how that is. So today what we're going to do is we're going to spend a little bit of time today finishing this up. We're going to talk about preservation and how God preserved his word over time and where it came from, how we came to um, here at Orlando Baptist Temple. You know, we're a King James church and how we got to the point um, of having the King James and how all the different steps that happened over time. We're going to talk about some of those things, and then we're going to make some applications. We're going to make some applications, and it's going to be a blessing. So let us pray, and then we'll get into uh, part two of why do Christians use the Bible. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day and for your son and for sending him to down the cross for our sins, Lord. We just thank you for your holy, inspired, full word of God, Lord, and that we, can, uh, we have access to you through it, God, and um, great things that we can pull from it. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us to realize how important uh, your word is, and that we would spend more time in it. And in, it, in this, we'll give you all the honor for it all. In Jesus' name, we pray and we're thankful. Amen. So preservation, right? If you, can, if you had to give your paper a title, you could write preservation um, at the top of this. And we're going to talk about those things. Uh, we talked about how God did use man to write the Bible. In fact, he used, um, in fact, he used um, 40 men over a period of 1,500 years to write that write the Bible. The Bible was written in three different languages in its original tongue, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. All right, so uh, the, Bible, the Bible and its components, it really started by, um, by something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyone ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls were um, a group of uh, scrolls that were found um, in the, the, uh, the Qumran Caves near the Dead Sea. Um, one, just one of these scrolls ended up being one foot by 24 feet. You guys ever seen those uh, maybe like on cartoons or something? And they'll be like, great, I have a list of demands. And then they let it go and then it just rolls down the, you know, down the, the aisle. Uh, the same thing kind of happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were one of the first, uh, was one of the first uh, depictions of scripture uh, that we got when it was being given to us in components. Um, then you have something called the Gutenberg Bible. The Gutenberg Bible, that's by Johann Gutenberg, and he used something called the movable type printing press. Anyone ever heard about the printing press? The printing press was used um, to, that was the first time that anything was able to be mass produced by, right? And so we have Bibles, like even up here, um, I have this Bible right here, and then I have another Bible up here. You know, and there's, uh, you know, there's several books and stuff all over the place. And the printing press was revolutionary because uh, 
before the printing press, see, y'all going to get some history before you get the lesson, right? The printing press was used to first be the first thing to manufacture, manufacture documents, right? Before then, people had to take, if you wanted a Bible back then, it was handwritten. You had the scribes who would literally make handwritten copies of the Bible. Imagine writing, imagine being on like Psalm 119 and getting to like verse 100 and then messing up. Oh, threw it away. I had a friend in college who, I don't know if he ever finished it, but he was writing the entire Bible hand by hand. And he, Genesis, and he would write, you know, he got through Genesis, wrote it by hand, every verse, all right? Then put that in a binder, it's about this thick, y'all, front and back. And then he would, he put that away, then he did Exodus, and he got Leviticus, and he was still working on the Old Testament, like, you know, six years ago. Um, I don't know if he ever finished it. Uh, but that's a lot of work. And there would be people who were dedicated to just writing these, writing the Bible by hand. So the, the, the printing press that came by uh, through Ju- Johann Gutenberg and made for mass production. And the first Bible was printed in 1456, right, in 1456. Then you have um, the, the New Testament. There's a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, and he published the Greek New Testament in 1516. And this was called the Textus Receptus. The Textus Receptus, and that's what we use um, for our, uh, our New Testament is from the, the Textus Receptus. It's a Greek translation, um, translation from, from the Greek. Um, and the goal was to make it easy for anyone who was studying, to, who was studying Greek. Then you had a man by the name of Wind- William Tyndale. Anyone ever had a Tyndale Bible before? A William Tyndale? Uh, he's, he translated from the the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English, right? Into English. Previous people like John Wycliffe, he translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate. Now, what did I tell you guys before? Whenever you're going to translate something, you need to translate it from what? The original. Y'all so smart. I'm so proud. So proud of y'all. Y'all so smart. If you're going to translate anything, it has to be done from the original language. So Tyndale, um, was the first person to, to start trying to translate the Bible fr- to English from its original languages, right? So there are other people who translated from the Latin Vulgate, like Wycliffe did. And you may say, well, what's the problem with that? Anything translated will get lost some in translation. Who speaks another language in here? All right. I see some different people. Brother Billy, you speak Creole, right? Now, you ever, whenever you're talking to maybe some of your Haitian-American friends, do you ever find where you'll speak in Creole, but maybe say some things in English and then go back to Creole? Every single day. Okay, great. Perfect. All right. So why does that, why do you think, why does that happen? Why do you do that? Y'all see that? Some of the words aren't the same or don't have the same meaning, right? They don't have the same meaning. So every time you translate, there will always be a little bit that is lost in translation. So if, if Billy translates the Bible from uh, from, from, you know, Greek and Hebrew into English and then says, okay, well, now I want to I wanna get a, a, a Haitian Creole Bible and I want to make one, he has two options. He can either make it from English or make it from Greek and Hebrew. His best bet is going to be to take it from Hebrew and Greek. Why? Because there's already going to be some translation lost from, in, from the Greek and the Hebrew to the English. Does that make sense? So that's why when you're talking about the, the different Bibles that you read, and we're going to talk about those in a, in a second, as we talk about King James and the NASB and the ESV and all that other stuff that are out there, NIV, and how 
you have to look at how a Bible is, re- is taken from the original language or has it been taken from something that's already been translated because that gives it way more room for error. So Tyndale was translating the Bible from Hebrew to Hebrew and Greek. Unfortunately, he lost his life before he could finish that. Um, he was killed. But then a man by the name of John Roberts, John Rogers, excuse me, he finished Tyndale's work in 1537. Um, in 1560, you had what was called the Geneva Bible. Anyone ever seen a Geneva Bible? Um, at PCC, they have a room. Corey, Sam, y'all ever been in that room? They got a room in the library that has a bunch of different artifacts and stuff in there. It's like a secret room. I might get shot for this. I might get, I might get assassinated. But it's a secret room that they took us into, and this different room it had a lot of really crazy artifacts. Like I believe there were like different elements of stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were um, different uh, manuscripts from original handwritten stuff. Um, you know, they had things in there like a Geneva Bible. Well, the Geneva Bible uh, was one that was kind of really big. It was something that was used, that Geneva Bible that I saw was really big. Uh, but it was used by the pilgrims, mostly, on their pilgrimage. And so they, and for them, it was more of a compact size Bible for them. And that was used to kind of help, especially, it's like a travel Bible for them. And that's how that was uh, originally used in 1516, 1560, and then we find out in 1611 we get our authorized King James Version. Now listen to me, for those of you sitting in here, or those of you listening to podcasts that always ask this question, does this mean that King James wrote the Bible? Someone tell me the answer, yes or no? No. King James did not write the Bible. Why do people think that? Y'all like King James wrote the Bible, and King James did, 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 I know that King James did some awful stuff. But he did not write the Bible. What happened in, is in 1604, he tasked six groups of men to re- convert this into English. The people that he chose from this were scholars in the original language and people who are masters of literary style. So he didn't just use anybody. He got the best of the best, right, to be able to translate the Bible from its Greek and from its Hebrew um, into English. Um, this took between 1604 and 1611 to finish. So you can tell that they took their time in trying to get, make sure that this was all done. And to be honest, um, I can't do basic math. What's, six, what's 11 t- minus 4? Is that 7? All right, so 7, right? So 7 years. I mean, I may argue that that might, even be, might not even be that much time. You know, if you think about the fact that, um, like, if you ever use your concordance, your concordance will tell you things like, uh, it's derived from this word, but here's the original word, and you can go back. And so there's a lot of layers uh, to this stuff. But nevertheless, they finished it in, uh, in 1611. And of course, moving forward from there, there were other different Bibles that were made, um, that were made to use, okay? And of course, the admonishment is if you ever do use another Bible, I would, I would encourage you to use, do your research, man. A lot of these Bibles out here are Swiss cheese Bibles, and they have holy theology. And I'm not talking about the spiritual kind. You know what I'm saying? And you got to be careful because they co- some of these versions completely omit important information. It may meet some of these versions take out stuff like the Trinity or the virgin birth and, uh, you know, stuff like that. And those are two very major doctrines. Like our whole faith hinges upon a virgin birth. You know what I'm saying? So it's important for those things. So be very, 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 very careful. You know, if you use something else, that's your own prerogative. But as far as I see, this King James, man, is undefeated. It's undefeated. And so that's why... Uh, That's why I use that, okay? So what do we get from the study, all right? Now that you've got some more history, all right? What do you get from the study? Talking about the Bible, all these different things. 
we get that, you know, the Bible is inspired. God breathed. It's not just art. It's, 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 a, it's not just an accompaniment for music. This is God downloading the Bible word for word into the people that he used to write it. So yes, men wrote the Bible, but by diver, div, uh, divine words. God used ordained people to do it. It wasn't just some random folks that were out here like, hey, what do you want to do today? Oh, no, let's go around. It wasn't like that. It wasn't some random people. God picked great men um, of God to write these things. It was, it was, you know, Moses. And he used, you know, a bunch of different people. Solomon in his wisdom wrote, you know, uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, you know, Song of Solomon and different stuff like that. So he used people who, and they weren't all prophets, but they were all people that God used that had really close relationships. Uh, with him to do these things. Um, God's word is in harmony. God's word is in harmony. And this is just talking about the fact that, man, people may say, oh, this is out of, this is, this contradicts with this. But remember, there's a historical context. There's a literal context. There's a contextual context, right? You got all these different ways of how you can view it. And so you have to be aware of when you read your Bible, you need to read before it, read after it, and what, what other passages of Scripture have to say about it, right? Because I can say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, even the only of the only begotten of the Father. I could say that, but what context do I get? I get that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? I get that. John 1, 5, uh, John chapter 1, verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 talks about how there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And so from just those three passages, I get that the, the Trinity is in effect. It's a real thing that God is Jesus, and Jesus is God, and God is the Word, and God is, and the Word is God, and the Word is Jesus, and Jesus is the Word. And there's a lot of stuff. You can make a really big tangled web connecting them all to each other. So to omit the Trinity is a big deal. But when you, so when you read your Bible, you have to look at what comes before it, Look at what comes after it, and then you want to see what Scripture says about it to get a full context. By the way, you also need to understand the geographic and regional context of it as well. Who was he writing to? Okay, so he's writing to the Romans. What period of time was this? Who was the ruler? Was it Herod? Who was, you know what I'm saying? Who was the religious leaders of that day? You know, what was going on? Was there political unrest? All of that stuff gives you context to what's happening and how you read and interpret your Bible. So you can't just, so when people come out of nowhere, especially unbelievers, right, and they're just kind of like, the Bible says, don't judge lest you be judged. Well, great. You just picked one verse out of like literally thousands with no context, with no, you know, nothing preceding it, nothing after it. You just took it like that, but you didn't know all of what was going on about it. It's important to gain the full context of all that you are reading. It's in harmony, and you have to make sure that you have the proper interpretation. So turn back to Proverbs if you're still there. Not Proverbs, but for, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's make some practical steps, and then we'll go home. We're going to make some practical steps, all right? This is the part where I get all up in your business, all right? So you turn there. I'm going to tie my shoe, okay? All right, I'm back. Hopefully y'all are there by now, all right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by, read it with me, y'all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All right? So with, the, with, so with the word being divinely inspired or breathed by God, why should you read it? Why should you read it? Here we go. Number one, it's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for doctrine. Doctrine here in this, in this verse, it means instruction, learning, and teaching. When we were kids, we had an acronym. When I was a kid, we had an acronym for the word Bible. Does anyone know it? The acronym for the word Bible? We had, it was a basic instructions before leaving earth, right? A little acronym, a little acronym for the Bible. And that encompasses what doctrine is. It's basic instructions. It's learning. It's teaching. It's in it that you find out that there's a God and he started everything. In it, you find out that he had a son who died on the cross for your sin. In it, you find out that he loved you so much that he did not want you to leave you alone, so he sent his Holy Spirit to keep you company. In it, you find that Jesus rose again. And in it, he defeated death and paving the way for us to dwell with God eternally. In it, you find out how to dwell with God eternally and that there's more that lies ahead after you take your final breath. In it, you learn how to be a better person, a better parent, a better child, a better spouse, employee, and more. In this Bible, there's elements of depression, anxiety, happiness, joy, and how to navigate through this life. There's so many people in this world who are hurt and they are broken down and they are lost because they don't have any, any instruction. They don't have any direction. They don't have any teaching. They don't have any doctrine. And the sad part is that God wrote a 66-book love letter for us to be able to know how to navigate through this life. And you may feel alone or you may actually be alone, but you don't have to be because the Bible says that God gave us something to be intimate with us. I told you guys about how I was supposed to send that girl that letter when I was in high school, and I didn't. God made sure that he sent, man, he said, how many, how many different ways you want it? I got it in black print. I got it with the red letters for Jesus speaking. I got historical contexts in the back. I got commentary at the bottom. I mean, if you want a, a full breakdown of what I mean by giving you this letter, then you have it. But it's, in, it's profitable for doctrine, for you to know what's right and know what's wrong, for you to know what's biblical and what's not biblical, for you to get a good, a complete understanding of how this is supposed to work and how, how this life is supposed to go. Why should you read it? Because it's profitable, which means it's to your best interest to do this. Why? So that you can increase in doctrine, in instruction, in learning, and teaching. Number two, it's profitable for reproof. The word reproof means to confute, admonish, convict, convince, tell fault, and rebuke. The Bible says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and that it pierces the soul and spirit and down to the joint and marrow as well. The Bible is a convicting agent. You understand that, right? The Bible is a convicting agent, right? What does James say that reading the Bible is like beholding your natural face in the glass? When you, and that's a lot of the reason why people don't want to read their Bible. Why? Because they're going to crack that bad boy open and God's going to be like, oh, you're back. Hey, let's chat. Anybody ever opened their Bible to do the devotions and read exactly what they needed? On the positive side, you've read some encouragement. There's one time, that happened to me this week a couple days ago, where I was reading my Bible and God was like, 
And I was like, all right, God, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'll get it right. But it's a convicting agent for reproof. He says, man, if you, you read your Bible, it's going to be something that's going to prick your heart. When, whenever you read it, it's not just going to be for leisure. You're going to be someone that is, that's someone that's going to be able to understand that, hey, I'm going to communicate my thoughts to you, what I like, what I don't like, and what you need to get right in your life. It's like talking to someone. It's like when you're getting a whooping. Anyone ever had the whoopings where your parents talk to you first? Who had those? The worst. Just beat me and get it over with. Right? Son, my son, and they try to use endearment. You know, get your chocolate hands off me. Use endearment. Son, you know I love you, right? And you know that God wants, God would not be happy with me if I didn't punish you, right? The rod of correction, son. And I love you. I really do. I swear I love you. But I have to, we have to get this taken care of because you disobeyed. Does God want you to disobey? No, Dad. So what does God want? By, the, by this time, you're crying, right? Because <laughs> you know what's coming. What does God want me to do? God wants you to spank me. Right? This is the convicting agent part of the spanking. When you read your Bible and God's like, hey, this is, listen to me. To those that know to do good and don't do it, it's sin, and you haven't been doing good, have you? That's that convicting agent. That's that be careful for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. You've been worrying about it, haven't you? Mm. Hey, men are always pray and not faint, but you fainted, didn't you? Mm. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, but you, didn't really, you weren't really kind to your neighbor this week, were you? Mm. You're supposed to love me more than everything else. But I've been like in sixth place. Isn't that true? Mm. That's that convicting part of the spanking, the part that makes you feel bad before you get the rod. That's reproof. When you read your Bible, it's not just going to be instruction and learning, but it's going to say, hey, I expect you to live a life that is holy and set apart, a life where you are trying to live to glorify and honor me. And if you're going to do that, it's going to require me to reprove you a little bit. It's going to challenge your lifestyle. It's going to address your holiness or lack thereof. It's going to push you to be righteous. And I don't know about you, but Xavier Small needs that kind of accountability. I need it. Because he's prone to do the wrong thing, and I need the convicting agent of the word to help keep me doing what's right. Number three. Number one was it's profitable for doctrine or to your best interest for doctrine. Number two, it's profitable for reproof or for, uh, to convict or convince, tell fault, to rebuke. Number three, it's profitable for correction. For correction. The word correction means a straightening up again, a rectification or a reformation. Reproof, I was talking to you about when you, looked at when you look at reproof and correction, right? All scripture is given inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction. You notice that those, those two words are next to each other, right? Reproof and correction. That's because they're two heads to the same coin. Reproof, again, is going to be the part that convicts you. The correction is going to be the physical whooping part. That's the actual rod. That's the part that, that's the straightening out agent of the word. This Bible will straighten you out. It'll drive you to make tangible changes in your life. 
Anyone, you don't have to give me an example, but anyone ever made, find themselves making a tangible change in their life since they became a Christian? You saw tangible changes. It could have been your speech. It could have been places you went, people you hung out with, stuff that you used to get involved in. But you'll find out that the longer you become a Christian, the longer the Holy Spirit works in your life, the longer you stay in his word, the longer you continue to get to know him, the more he will correct you and straighten you out to be the kind of person that he wants you to be. And that's not going to happen if you're not going to read his instructions. God, I want to be better for you. But yeah, yeah, Bible, you haven't picked up your Bible in weeks. We haven't picked up your Bible in weeks. You haven't been spending any time in that word. How is it supposed to straighten you out? How is it supposed to correct you? Listen to me. If you're a believer in this room and you're trying to kick a habit, but you're not spending any time in the word, you ain't kicking nothing but air. You're not kicking jack. If you are trying to grow in God without God, then you might as well have just get you a motivational speaker because you're not, you, you, you don't want to do anything tangible for it. It will cause tangible change. It's a standing out agent. I heard someone say this to me the other day, not the other day, but a little while ago. She said, my sister converted to Christianity, and she completely changed. I don't, I don't like it, and I don't even recognize her anymore. Sounds just about how God does this, how he straightens us out, how he corrects us to, do, to become more like him. That's because the word of God corrects us. It's like a spiritual chiropractor. It will straighten you out. It's a spiritual chiropractor that will straighten you out. And so it's profitable for reproof, but it's also profitable for correction. It's going to give you that verbal side that, hey, you got to straighten up. You've not been doing this right. And then it's also going to inspire you to do this. He says, hey, don't just be a hearer of the word, but a what? A doer. Will someone help Miss Gloria with her phone? She was riding a struggle bus just now. You ever notice how you freak out when your phone goes off in a place you're not supposed to? <laughs> you don't know how to stop the call. And it's worse when you finally get the call to stop and they call you back. <laughs> you're like, oh, no, no. Back in the day, <laughs> back in the day in the youth department when you can still get access to your battery, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> phone going off in service, you just pop the back off real quick and just boop, pop the battery off. You're like, yeah, phone, get me now. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I feel that pain. Smartphones, boy, you got to go through like six locks. You got to unlock the screen. You got to press this button over here. You got to flip it upside down. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. So I understand. We love you, Miss Gloria. We love you. For correction. Number four, it's profitable for instruction and in righteousness. Instruction in righteousness. If you want to know how to be a better Christian, the Bible and the Holy Spirit are the best teachers. Of course, God raises up people like me to help communicate or teach the word. But God, through his word and his spirit, will show you how to be a better you for him. Why do you think whenever anything happens, the first thing to slip up in our life is our devotional reading? Whenever you start struggling as a person or whenever you start going through it, the first thing to take a hit is your Bible. Have you been going through it? Struggling? Dabbling in your old self? That's interesting. When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you read your Bible? When's the last time you removed yourself from the world and dwelled in the company and fellowship with other believers? See, the Bible will teach you how to feed your spirit. 
It's going to teach you how to feed your spirit and what it means to walk in the light and how to walk in the righteousness of Christ. This is not to make you holier than thou or overly pious, but to make it so that when people see you, they don't see you. You understand that, right? The goal is not for you to look in the mirror and see Sam. It's not for you to look in the mirror and see Billy. It's not for you to look in the mirror, the mirror and see Paul or see Xavier. The purpose is you want to get to the place where you can start seeing less of you and more of God in your life. When people can look at you and say, something's different. What is that? What, 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 girl, you glowing. Wow. That's that godly glow. That's that godly glow. The blessings raining down on me. What do people see when they see you? Because it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. Because you in yourself are not righteous. You understand that, right? As a matter of fact, your righteousness altogether is as filthy rags. But it's Christ's righteousness within us. When you walk into heaven, it's not going to be because you, you're really awesome. You're going to have a cloak on that's not yours. Literally, the blood of Christ, you know, not, well, not literally, but it's, I mean, it's, it's the blood of Christ that's, that's over you, that masks you. That sealing agent that says, hey, all that stuff that's in here, I'm going to pour this, I'm going to pour this on you. And then it's going to clean out all those toxins in your life. And so by the time you stand before an almighty God, it's not you standing before him, it's me. Which makes perfect sense as to why he looks, checks in that book for your sin and he can't find any. When it's cast as far as the east is from the west. When you can finally be glorified because it, was, it wasn't just you or your works. It was the Holy Spirit stealing you like a belt. It was, it was the righteousness of Christ that was making us to be people or, or, or understanding that we are individuals that are, are masked by what Christ has done for us. It's, it's completely washed us away. Completely washed us away. Where God literally erased your name and wrote his so when, so when you stand before Christ one day, Miss Pam, it's going to be Jesus. When you stand before Christ one day, Mary, it's going to be Jesus. Days, when you stand before God one day, it's going to be Jesus. Hey, Abby, when you stand before God one day, it's going to be Jesus. That's what God's going to see. Righteousness unlike anything else. And it's not because anything you did. It's because Christ is so loving. And God is so giving that he would send his son, that he would bankrupt heaven to drench you in all that you need to become a citizen of heaven. And that's exactly why you need that word. Because the spirit has to eat. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by, bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's because it's like your physical body has to eat. You know what I had yesterday for dinner, y'all? We had PDQ. Anyone ever been to PDQ? PDQ stands for People Dedicated to Quality. Imagine a fast food restaurant called People Delegated to Quality. They have this honey spicy chicken sandwich. Is that what it was? Honey spicy chicken? Y'all? PDQ. Listen to me, y'all. Chick-fil-A. Like, PDQ. And if y'all know how much I love the Lord's Manor, a.k.a. Chick-fil-A, you know that for me to say that is a huge statement. Because Brother Michael, how many times have you been to Chick-fil-A with me? And what do I get? Every time. Every time. Same thing. Give me number one. Might as well get my, just know my name. When I walk in, know I want a number one. Just know it. Right? Well, now I've been messed with the spicy chicken sandwich, so now it's number two. But you know what I'm saying. 
but it's good. It's good, y'all. Ooh. And then Popeyes is down here somewhere. Yeah, whatever. It's all right. Brother Billy, you a foodie. You think a Popeye's chicken sandwich is better than Chick-fil-A? I do too. That's a good answer. Amen. Sanctified. I love it. Instruction but instruction and righteousness. You might say, Pastor, why are you talking about Chick-fil-A sandwiches? Chick-fil-A ain't even open on Sunday. Just as your, your physical body has to eat, your spirit has to eat also. And if you really want to grow in, in, in that instruction and righteousness, it's going to feed spirit. I've been reading your Bible. You have not been feeding your spirit. You've not. Because, yeah, you can listen to praise and worship. Babe, we listened to some praise and worship on the way to church today. Last night I did. I listened to praise and worship all the time. Biggest playlist. We're tired of our playlist. We listen to it so much. But that is not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough to get encouragement or to, just, or to go to church. It's going to require one-on-one interaction with God for that instruction and righteousness to take effect like it wants to. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. For instruction in righteousness. Number five and lastly, it's profitable, profitable because it will help you be complete. Verse 17, thank you, Brother Jay. You already knew where I was going. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You know what my fa- you know what my least, I, I mean, I hate dishes altogether. But who can guess what my least favorite dish to wash is? What do you think? What do you think? Out of all the dishes in the sink, right, that's cumulative, all of it, cups, knives, forks, bowls. What? The pot? That's a, that's a hard number two, though. That's a really strong number two, but not number one. What do, you, what do y'all think it is? Guess. Huh? Bowls? Not, nope. Utensils? Nope. Ain't that many options left. The cups. You know why I hate washing cups? Because at my house, we want to be fancy. Well, actually, y'all want to be fancy because y'all got them for us for our wedding. So it's y'all's fault that I have this calamity. We got those tall glasses. And it's the worst when you're trying to use get the sponge and you're trying to dip your hand into the cup. You know what I'm talking about, y'all? Look at, look, I mean, I got small hands for a, a guy, I guess, but I got big knuckles. And so I get in there, my hand's like, eh, you know what I'm saying? They get, they get stuck really quickly. And so I'm trying to use, the, I got like the sponge by the tip of it. I'm trying to like swirl it around, like trying to get in there. It's hard unless you have, like, at my in-law's house, y'all got that, that little s- little s- scrubby thing with a stick on it. Y'all fancy, fancy, right? You could pour the detergent into the, into the handle. So that's a lot. I, you know, I'm taking that today to my house, all right? It's hard to truly clean those cups. You can get in there. And a lot of times, y'all, I got to let those cups soak because I, I'm like, I can't get my hands all the way in there, right? And so I got to let them soak in some wa- hot water and some soap and stuff like that. But it's hard, to, it's hard to get your hands, which is why I don't even like to use them that much. I really don't. I like to use the jars and stuff that we have. I don't really like, or, you know what I'm saying? I don't like them. I don't like them. I promise if you come over, our dishes are clean. I promise. Let's make Kalea do it. Her hands are smaller than mine. All right? I say that to say this. 
sometimes it's hard to use that sponge and that soap to get to all the crevices of that cup. And so you need special tools to do it. You may need that, that, that sponge with a handle on it to get in there and really be able to get what other, what other, whatever grime or juice is in that cup. And that's the same way that you are as an individual. You're the cup. And we want so desperately to be clean where you can see the, the, the lights just shining off of the glass. But you're trying to use that standard sponge to clean your cup and it's not working for you. So you're trying to listen to Christian music. I mean, it's soap. I mean, you're trying to listen to pastor preach. I mean, it's soap. You listen to, you listen to people's podcasts with sermons on it. I mean, it's soap. But unless you get into the word, the word is worth that handle on it. It's going to get in there and oxyclean that bad boy. So if you really want to be thoroughly perfect, you want to be clean, you want to be furnished, complete. That's what it's talking about. The, the word of God is, is, is instrumental in your sanctification process to help you to be complete. For the non-believer, God wants you to know him and his son. He wants you to be saved. For the believer, God wants you to be sanctified, to be holy as he is holy, to be a true Christian. Listen to me, y'all. I'm going to read this verbatim because I want y'all to hear it. All right? God does not want you to be the God knows my heart kind of Christian. God wants you to be the sold out, put him first, let him be the Lord of your life. You go and I'll follow, Christian. Put him in the cool of the day kind of Christian. There's no other real relationship that we would have where we would let it go days, weeks, or years without going, without, uh, without investing in it, and still expect it to stand. God wants you to fix it. Stop saying that God knows your heart, because if you really thought about what you're saying, nobody would be bragging about God knowing their heart. We, we always go, well, God knows my heart. The Lord knows my heart. The Lord knows my heart. And yeah, he does, but that's not a good place to be. Like, you should not be happy that God knows your heart. And we got to stop using that as an excuse to live lackadaisical Christian lives. Well, God knows my heart. No, you're being a sluggard. You put God on the back burner. God is no longer number one in your life. And that's why it's not even just about going to church. It's about the way that you that you're walk. Well, me and God got our own thing going on. Well, I don't see a whole lot of derivatives about how God says it's supposed to go on. And so if you're not spending any time with him, I'm not sure what y'all got going on at all. It's important to realize, and look, yes, everyone's walk is different. That's not the point. The point is realizing that as you live a life devoted to God, that his word is going to be your instruction manual and in how to get that done. So again, it's not all about the historical context or all that other stuff, but it's knowing what the power that it has and what it can do within you. What it can do within you. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, I'm already past that, you late. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You have your justification process where you get saved and it's just as if you've never sinned. But right now, if you're a believer in this room, you are all in your sanctification process. As God makes you to be more and more like him. And that's going to require you being in that word to become more and more like him. How can you be more like him if you don't know how to? 
Because then after this is the glorification side, and that's, that, that's out of your hands, man. Get in your word. Get in your Bible. If there's one thing that you should not neglect, it's the Bible. You can't neglect that. There's no way you can be a proper Christian and neglect your Bible. You can't. You can't. There's no way you're growing anyway. You understand me? Let's pray. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man 